Ah, hello special people. It's been a while. Pendulet said, <clears throat> the Bible made me an atheist. And that is the topic for today. It's good to be with you. Today is the 1st of October 2021. Can you believe it? This is episode 66 of Fishing for Men with Mac. And if you're new to this podcast, this podcast is about different worldviews. Um, I also try to bring in some of my experiences with people as I make disciples. And it's also about the search for truth in this world where we live in. And so you will find various topics dealt with in this podcast. In any case, but for today, you know how Facebook works. You watch a video of something that catches your eye. And before you know it, that page uh, that showed that video is programmed to send you continuous, continuous videos from it. While well, a page called Big Think has infiltrated my Facebook, and I'm fine with it because the, vis- the videos are usually quite interesting. It's usually um, presented by atheists and atheistic topics, and it's sometimes so interesting. I think most of the time it's airy-fairy. But anyways, one of the videos that came across my feed this week was of a guy by the name of Penn Gillette. He was the one being interviewed, and the title of the video was Reading the Bible will make you an atheist. And that caught my eye because I read the Bible a lot. And, and, and I believe or I've experienced that the more I read the Bible, the more I do believe in God. And so this was interesting for me how somebody would read the Bible and they not believe in God. So I wanted to figure out what that's about. And so I watched it and I thought that would make a nice topic for this week's podcast. And so let's uh, go into who this guy is, Ben Gillette. He's an American uh, magician, actor, musician, inventor, television presenter, and apparently he's also an author. He's authored about eight books, one of them being a bestseller. Uh, The title was God, No, Signs You May Already Be an Atheist, and Other Magical Tales. And so his primary, one of the things that he does is that he advocates atheism and I must say he sounds like a very very nice guy and um, any case um, I'm going to play you the audio of the video and as he speaks I want to challenge you to listen carefully and see what you can learn I will try uh, to the best of my ability evaluate what he says and see what we can learn in the process now it's not in the audio but the video starts with a silent question and this is the question i'm going to read you the question and then i'm going to start playing the video and then you can hear what he says how did you become an atheist that's the question that's posed at pen and pen explains it like this uh in my church group in um in uh, greenfield massachusetts at the age of about 16 or 17 I had made a deal with my mom and dad. I was very, very close to my mom and dad. I'm a real mama's boy and uh, got along with them my whole life, hardly even rough periods. And they went to the Congregationless Church, the Church of the Covered Dish Supper in uh, Greenfield, Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts is an old enough state that you could not charter a town without having a Congregationless Church. And this was the first one in our town, I mean, from back 200 years ago. And... Um, I uh, made a deal with my mom and dad that I wouldn't have to go to church services uh, Sunday morning if I went to youth group Sunday night. So we had a uh, pastor, that minister uh, at that at that um, church that was uh, fairly hip. You know, he's trying to deal with the with the children, play a Jim Morrison song once in a while, you know, play the Beatles uh, far out. 
and uh, he sincerely uh, wanted us to uh, to do some inquiry into uh, theological questions. And I took it very seriously. I may have been the only one in the youth group that did take it seriously. And I read the Bible cover to cover. And I think that anyone who is thinking about maybe being an atheist, uh, if you read the Bible or the Koran or the Torah uh, cover to cover, I believe you will emerge from that as an atheist. Uh, I mean, you can read The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. You can read uh, God is Not Great by Hitchens. But the Bible itself will turn you atheist faster than anything. I think because uh, what we get told about the Bible is, uh, is a lot of picking and choosing. When you see, um, you know, Lot's daughter uh, gang raped and beaten and, and, and the Lord being okay with that, when you actually read about uh, Abraham being willing to kill his son, uh, when you actually read that, when you read the insanity of the talking snake, when you read the um, hostility towards uh, homosexuals, towards women, the, um, the celebration of slavery, when you read in context that thou shalt not kill means only in your own tribe. I mean, there's no hint that it means humanity in general, that there's no sense of a, uh, of a shared humanity. It's all tribal. When you see a God that is uh, jealous and insecure, uh, when you see that there's contradictions that show that it was clearly uh, written hundreds of years after the supposed fact and full of contradictions, I think that anybody, you know, it's, it's like reading the Constitution of the United States of America. It's, been, it's in English, <laughs> you know. You don't need someone to hold your hand. Just pick it up and read it. Just read what the First Amendment says, and then read what the Bible says. Going back to the source material is always the best. When someone's trying to interpret something for you, they always have an agenda. Uh, so I read the Bible, and then I read, you know, Bertrand Russell, and I read a lot of other stuff, because in the Greenfield Public Library, the 900s of the Dewey Decimal System, I mean, one of the few people that still remembers it, um, the 900s, your theology, and they're only about this long. I don't know if that's all on camera. They're only about this long. Um, the one-armed guy who caught a fish this big. They're only about this, this long. And so I read a lot of them. And I started going into class. And the, to his credit, the pastor, who was a wonderful man, wonderful man, um, would let me talk to him about this stuff. And finally after, I don't know, it's so long ago, but um, after months of this um, <laughs> platonic uh, uh, questioning every night at youth group, the uh, minister called my, uh, my mom and dad and said, you know, I think maybe uh, Ben should stop coming to youth group. He's no longer learning about the Bible from me. He is now converting everyone in the class to atheism. <laughs> So I was um, asked to leave, very politely, very nicely, uh, youth group. And uh, then, with the help of uh, Martin Mull, Randy Newman, Frank Zappa, uh, the idea that these three men were out-of-the-closet atheists uh, was so inspiring to me and so important to me. And reading interviews with somebody, and I remember being um, somebody in a religious, and I'm not, not a religious community like whack jobs, but, you know, in a, in a community where most everyone was Christian, um, 
having those people in interviews say the simple sentence, there is no God, uh, meant the world to me and gave me joy and gave me passion and gave me love and gave me confidence. And I think the first time I was interviewed, uh, as presumptuous as this seems, and please forgive me, um, I remembered Frank Zappa's interviews and I wanted to, um, to give a chance for someone else reading that to not feel they were alone. Now that's less important now. I mean, the, the population of atheists in this country is going through the roof. I mean, I'm now on the side that's winning. Uh, you know, it's over 20% by some polls. Uh, and uh, I believe if you counted atheism as a religion, it's the fastest growing religion in the history of the United States of America. So now I'm on the team that's winning, which is an uncomfortable position for me. But back, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it still felt like it meant something, you know. It's we're uh, we're uh, several years behind um, uh, gay rights, but um, uh, we're following a, a much faster path at acceptance. Okay, so uh, let me start um, now. I don't know the man personally, but one thing I pick up in the video right from the beginning is something that I see a lot. Let me state it in this way. Very few people come to a religion or a religious text with an objective or neutral perspective. They often come with preconceived ideas that turn into self-fulfilling prophecies. Let me give an example. A person comes to church expecting there to be hypocrites or expecting not to be greeted. And then the person is not greeted by some people and he sees somebody in the church that he knows is, is not really an exemplary Christian. And then he walks away from the church saying, I told you so. That person didn't come to the church with a neutral objective perspective. He already came with a negative perspective. Or a person comes to the Bible with an already negative feeling towards God reads the Bible, naturally are drawn to the negative aspects of the text, and then walking away from the text saying, I told you so, who can believe in this junk? But if that person is honest and he goes back to what he thought before he actually read the Bible, he would see that he did already um, have a problem with it before he started reading it. Now, Penn gives away the same thing in this video. He says that he negotiated with his parents to go to the Friday services, the youth services, so he doesn't have to go to the Sunday morning services. What does that tell you? Before he even read the Bible, he didn't like Christianity. He didn't go on Fridays out of his own will or interest, but because his parents had forced him. He negotiated with his parents. It's clear he wasn't interested in going to church. And so he didn't come to the Bible with a neutral and objective perspective. He did not seek God. He looked for flaws in the faith that he already didn't like. And it is easy to find what you look for. Uh, so we need to be very careful of this. Whether you believe in God or not believe in God, we need to be very careful that we always try to look at things objectively. Even looking at his video, I've got to be trying my best to be objective as I evaluate what he is saying and to acknowledge that when there's truth in what he says and falsehood in what he says and not let my preconceived, my uh, let's call it predisposed belief in God affect the way that I view him or the video. He then makes the main statement of the video. He says, if you read the Bible, you will emerge an atheist. 
Now let's think about that for a moment, whether that statement is true. He's making the claim saying that if you read the Bible, you will emerge an atheist. And that is just simply a false statement, as objectively as possible as I can be. And here's why. Because billions of people read the Bible and they believe in God. Billions of people. I would go as far as to say that more people believe in God because they have read the Bible somewhere than people who have stopped believing in God because they have read the Bible. The reason why Christianity exists is because of the Bible. And so the question arises, how can two people reach different conclusions Yet they are reading the same text because they are searching for two different things, because they have different preconceived ideas. The Bible, ladies and gentlemen, is a fascinating book. You can come to it looking for contradictions and you will find contradictions. You can come to it looking for immorality and problems and you will find immorality and problems. You can come to the Bible and look for faults and you will find faults. You can come to the Bible and look for aliens. And lo and behold, even the word alien exists in the Bible. You will find some theory about aliens that you extract from the Bible. You can come to the Bible looking for God and you will find God. It is as if the book. Um, I don't really want to use the word Bible or book because that's not the idea that God had in mind. Um, let's call it the scriptures. It is. It is as if these scriptures have been put together in that way, as if God has designed it in such a way that only those who truly seek him will find him. It all depends on your search for truth. It's as if the scriptures is like a it's like a, a mirror. You see, you, you see yourself in it. You see uh, you find in the Bible what you are looking for. And so that's very important to remember. The, the Bible itself talks about itself and says that it is God-breathed. All scriptures God-breathed. So God's breath is in it. Ben then continues to talk about the various ideas and stories in the Bible that he claims made him an atheist. And so we say, okay, so you read the Bible and it's made you an atheist. What is it that you read that made you an atheist or made you to believe? To, um, not believe in God. And I, I just picked up as I um, watched the video is that we've got to distinguish between <clears throat> not believing in God or not liking God. Because as you hear him talking, it seems like um, to a large extent, and I'll pick out some of the topics, is that he just he doesn't like God. And that makes him feel, well, if I don't like God, then God doesn't exist. And that's not necessarily the case. That's not uh, that's not the best solution to uh, the, the problem. So anyways, let's look at some of these things. The first thing he points out is this, and I'm quoting his own words. Lot's daughter being gang raped and beaten and the Lord being okay with that. Now, <clears throat> let me read to you the text. What happens there? This is found in Genesis chapter 19. There were some men. This was, we believe that they were angels, but the text also says that they were God. Um, they, they came down to Sodom and Gomorrah. They've heard that this city is extremely wicked. And so I'm going to read to you from verse 4. Before they had gone to bed. And so this guy Lot invites these men. These are angels from God to destroy the city. They've come to see what the city looks like. And Lot has invited them into his house. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? 
Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him. Okay, so is the door closed behind him? Yes, it is. And said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. All right. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. The door that had closed behind him. Right. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. And then what happens later is that they run away from the town and heaven burns down the city of Sodom, destroys it, kills all the people. Now, what do you pick up in this story that contradicts what Penn had said? First, they were never gang raped. The men were struck with blindness. Nobody was raped. Never mind even being beaten. Nobody was beaten. That's the first thing. Secondly, the Lord was not okay with these rapists. Nowhere do we read anything about God being okay with it. That is why he struck them with blindness. And he destroyed their whole city and burned them all up with fire. So, Pen, God is on the same side as you. He also despised rape. He despises rape. Thirdly, the difficulty in this text that I think Penn is referring to is that Lot is the shady character in the story, not God. God is not the one saying to Lot, listen, dude, why don't you give your daughters to these guys to be raped? No, that's what came out of Lot's mouth. By the way, who I believe Lot was a little bit of a problematic character because why did he live in Sodom in the first place? And why would he offer his daughters like that? I have some ideas, but I would personally never do that. Okay. And nowhere does God or anybody that honors him approve of such behavior. The Bible records people's behaviors, whether they are good or bad. Okay, as is happening here, the Bible is simply recording a story of what somebody had done. And this is not a good reason to reject God, to say, well, because Lot said this, now God doesn't exist anymore. No, God did not say that. Lot said that, okay. Why reject God because a story is recorded in his word where someone hints at doing something that is really stupid, which isn't done in any ways. Okay, so that's the first story. I don't think that's a valid reason. It's, uh, he, the, he, he doesn't read the text correctly. He's got the wrong story. Okay. The second thing that he talks about is he says um, Abraham being willing to kill his son. Now, it does raise a concern if you don't understand the rest of Scripture, the story of Abraham is a type and a prediction of what God would do with his son on the cross. We have to remember that God stopped Isaac from sacrificing his son. And if you want to go read that, that's in Genesis chapter 22. Uh, the very reason why Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son is because he believed God could raise his son from the dead. And the text shows that clearly. Why would Abraham think so? Well, because God had given him a son when his wife was 90 years old. Abraham had seen the miracles of God too numerous times in his life to think that it would be the end of his son's life. And so God did not require of Isaac to kill his son. God did not let Isaac kill his son. He did it as a test. Okay. 
at that time, there were many other pagan religions where people did offer their children as sacrifices. Okay, so that's definitely not something that comes, comes from the God of heaven and earth. And so the story of Abraham and Isaac points squarely to the cross. There's nothing that God did uh, in, in Genesis chapter 22 that, is, that gives him a bad character, a bad name. Or destroys our idea of his love for the human race. Rather, it was a test on Abraham to see whether he really uh, loves God and is obedient to God. Then he talks about the talking snake. Yeah, that's that's a problem, right? Um, there's also the talking donkey in the Bible, if you didn't know that. Um, and you know what? I understand that. I understand that that's difficult. Um, and the only way that you can deal with this idea of talking snakes and talking donkeys is to go and find out, okay, but let me go study this text. Let me go study this story and go find out. But why is this thing in the Bible? What is this about? What is this trying to say? If you look at the, the significance of Genesis chapter 3, the literality of the snake disappears into insignificance. In other words, if you look at the theological depth of Genesis chapter 3, then you understand. Genesis chapter 3 carries depth that explains so much of the human condition. And the snake is simply the source and the author of evil. If somebody wants to truly experience and see the relevance and truth of a religious text, you have to come to it with its intended message. You have to do proper hermeneutics. Therefore, I don't see the snake being a major issue that will make one stop believing in God. In actual fact, the representation of the snake helps us make sense of life. Now, you might say, well, what am I talking about? Because most simple people out there that don't look at the depth of scripture, they would just see, well, it's a talking snake, so it must be non nonsense. Um no, here's, here's the point of the snake. Atheism agrees that evil exists, but cannot explain it. Theism explains it very well. And that is where the snake comes in. Theism says that there is an antagonist in the story of the world. There is a spiritual being that misleads people to hurt one another. And since he's a spiritual being, the best animal to compare him with is a snake. A snake that is crafty silent and well what do we all know about a snake we hate them right we despise a snake we're scared of snakes so you can choose to be bogged down with the literality of a snake or you can read the text in its intended genre for the truth that it is meant to convey and i, I hope that i explained that um, pretty well but the, the point is just that it is a it is very irresponsible to look at a text like genesis chapter 3 and just look at it literally and not look at the, the theological depth that it's trying to portray, that it's trying, the message is trying to give us. But you bog down just with the idea that a snake talks. And you don't look deeper and ask the question, but what did he say? And why did he say it? And to whom did he say it? And what's the point? What's the theological significance of that with the rest of the Bible? I think it's quite shallow and quite irresponsible. Now you can go to Genesis chapter 3. You can read the story and then you can realize, oh my goodness, this makes sense. This is why life is like it is. This is why it is like it is. This is why sin exists. This is why suffering exists. And that this is where evil comes from. So you can go, if you look for truth, that's what you can extract from Genesis chapter 3. Or you can go to Genesis chapter 3 with already skepticism. See the first verse about a talking snake and then say, well, no, this is nonsense. This is nonsense. There's no, there's no truth in it. Because you're not seeking the truth. You're looking for um, something that contradicts your lived experience. 
He then talks about Penn then talks about hostility towards homosexuals and women. Now, I'm not sure about that. I don't see God anywhere being hostile towards women in the Bible. So not not sure. I mean, Jesus was primarily followed by women. Um, he honored women. Proverbs 31 honors women. Right through the Bible, women are honored. So I'm not sure about any hostility towards women. Uh, uh, Jesus let prostitutes wash his feet. He um, spoke to the woman at the well. He, uh, yeah, so I don't know. Um, does God require men to lead and protect their families? Yes. Does the scripture say that uh, men are to be leaders in their homes? Absolutely, yes. Are they supposed to protect their families? Absolutely, yes. Anybody's got a problem with that, then that's that's a problem that they have with God. I don't think that's a reason for atheism. I think that's very reasonable. Um, so, um, God is not um, hostile towards women. Um, he, he made them. And I, I and if, if I had to ask God, you know, who's the most special in your creation? I think he would say women. So because he decided to to call the church his bride and Israel was his wife. And so um, but maybe I think Ben might be referring to Islam because Islam is a different religion where women are definitely oppressed. Um, any case, uh, it, it talks about homosexuality. Um, and he says, well, why is the Bible so hostile towards homosexuality? And I would actually agree with him more there. I mean, God goes down the story we just read. He destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. That's quite hostile. Um, but I, I think you can also pick up in the text the reason why God is hostile towards Sodom and Gomorrah is because homosexuality wasn't the only thing. There was a there was a sick depravity taking place there. I mean, they were willing to just rape people. They wanted to rape those men. OK, so. Um, and the Bible does tell us that sexual sin is on a different level. And I mean, now we could we could be upset about that, for example. But, you know, God does not judge homosexuality higher than adultery. In actual fact, the Bible speaks more about adultery than homosexuality. Um, you know, uh, fornication, all sexual sin, the Bible says, is sin against your own body. If you go look at the biggest problems in the world today, you go look at all the problems in the world the biggest problems in the world goes back to sexuality. Broken families, children without parents. It all goes back to sex because people can't control themselves. The diseases of the world. It is a, it is a known statistical fact that homosexuality, um, uh, homosexuality uh, carries more disease. Um, and so one of the questions that they do ask you when you go give blood is they ask you, have you been involved in any homosexual behavior? Um, so I understand that that God is more hostile towards sexual sin, but homosexuality isn't necessarily singled out. Now, yes, if you believe that it is natural and normal to be homosexual and that it is good for you and God feels the opposite, then right, I say reject God. Because then, then you're not rejecting the existence of God, then you are rejecting the principles of God. But then you need to state that. You need to state that you're rejecting God because you dislike His principles and rule, so rules and the way that He has created the world. And not say, well, I reject God because I read the Bible. And I also see a contradiction here because Ben, he, he rejects the rape that we read about in Genesis chapter 19, but not the homosexuality. But the same people who wanted to do the raping, they were homosexuals. So, so the people in Sodom, they practiced both. And so you're upset that God is hostile towards homosexuality, while at the same time you criticize him for not being hostile towards rape. 
And I also wouldn't say that hostile is the right word. There were homosexual converts in the Corinthian church, for example. They were accepted into God's kingdom when they changed their lives, when they realized, oh my goodness, I'm walking in sin. And, and perhaps I just need to interject here quickly. If God is real, created male and female for reproduction, and he created them so that they complement each other, that they are biologically and psychologically and emotionally made for each other and spiritually made for each other. And then you come and you violate the reproductive process. In other words, you come and you say, well, you won't have babies because now you, you, can't, you, you can't reproduce. Two males and two females cannot reproduce. Okay, And you abuse biological organs. In other words, you have sex in ways that they were not intended uh, to, to, to be used. And you perpetuate diseases that kills people like gonorrhea and syphilis and HIV. Do you think that he, it's, it's really ridiculous that he has a problem with it? I don't think so at all. I, I understand fully why he would be upset with that. Now, if you don't like God because you created male and female, then so be it. That is a good and honest reason to be an atheist. And I would respect you for that because then you are clear with your position as the people surrounding Lot's house are as well. Then he talks about the celebration of slavery. I don't see any celebration of slavery in the text. We read about slavery in the text because it was part of the secular world within which the biblical characters lived. Some Christians were slaves. Some Christians were slave owners. In actual fact, go read the book of Philemon. The great apostle Paul is protecting a slave there. So um, I don't see the Bible anywhere promote um, or even establish slavery. Um, then he talks about, he says, Thou shalt not kill means only in your own tribe. Um, sure, that's simply not true. This is, uh, and he's talking about Judaism, by the way. Uh, you don't see this in Christianity. Um, the Jews had a death penalty. So they definitely did kill people for, from their own tribes. They did not kill people randomly from other tribes with any more reason than the soldiers in the U.S. Army do today when they engage people in battle. When it comes to Christianity, it's definitely the case that nobody kills anybody else. Christianity isn't a tribal thing. In actual fact, Jesus raises the standard and he says it is wrong to even just get angry with someone. And then he talks about the idea that Christianity or, you know, the Bible, there's no idea of shared humanity. It is all tribal. Um and I would say that to extent, I wouldn't use tribal as the right word, but definitely there's a separation between being a Christian and being a non-Christian. There's, there's a separation between those who honor God and those who don't. It doesn't mean that the other person is not a human. That's exactly why the major tenet of Christianity is to tell other people, other humans about God because you love them. Exactly because you love them. And so you do find those who rape and those who don't. Even today we have divisions in society. We've got Democrats and Republicans. You fit into each category based on what you believe is good and right. So why critique the idea of tribalism, if that's what you want to call it, if we still do the same thing today? We still have divisions today. And then he talks about the idea, he goes on to say that uh, you, in the Bible you see a God that is jealous and insecure. Um, the jealousy, absolutely, yes. He's got it 100% right there. The, the Bible is filled with the idea. And God himself says that he's a jealous God. Um, let me ask you the question. If your wife is sleeping around with other men, would you not be jealous? In actual fact, if it is okay with you, 
if you're not jealous that your wife is sleeping around with other men, I would say that there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. This is the context of God's jealousy. God has got the right to be jealous. He was jealous in the sense of concern that his people had turned to worship idols and mute things, even though they are in a covenant with him. He's got a relationship with him. That's why he calls Israel his wife. He says, I'm jealous for you. I'm jealous. It's the same thing that we as men do and as wives do. We are jealous. There's nothing wrong with jealousy. And I, and I think maybe Penn understands jealousy in a negative context. Um, and then he talks about God being insecure. I'm not sure where he gets that from. The Bible over and over presents the idea that God doesn't need us or the world. He's no better or worse off with us or without us. We can just all be damned to eternity and he would be fine. Okay, so he's not insecure. Uh, he talks about contradictions in the Bible. Yes, there are minor contradictions in the Bible. Very minor contradictions here and there, like a different word or an amount that is different. But there isn't one contradiction that makes any significant dent in the overall truth of Scripture. And if you find a contradiction that doesn't seem to make sense, you just haven't studied it enough, which I can guarantee you, Ben, has not done. Now, I could do a whole podcast just on that to, to prove how 99 point something 4% of all Scripture is reliable and that 0.6% that could be considered small, um, small deviances. And it's because the book... And the letters were written by people, although it was breathed in by God. Uh, so these are basically the the Bible ideas that it's that it seems to have a problem with. Just a f few notes um, to conclude with some final thoughts for us. He talks about the people that had contributed to his worldview. He names them. He talks about Bertrand Russell, a logician. Martin Moore, an actor, Randy Newman, a singer, Frank Zappa, a musician. He talks about the books of Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. But you don't hear him talk about the books and people that disagree with him. He doesn't mention the names of John Lennox and Frank Turek or William Lane Craig. A person seeking the truth will always look at both sides of an argument. And that is clearly not the case with him. It re he really reveals the idea that he's read only certain parts. So he would read the Bible, form his own conclusions, and not talk to experts on that. We need to always remember that we always need to look at both sides of the argument. In front of me, right here on my desk, I have a book by John Lennox called God's Undertaker, where he, where he um, breaks down the arguments of evolution and the idea that evolution proves God doesn't exist. Okay? On my same desk, I've got a book of Richard Dawkins called Outgrowing God, where he is he's trying to convey the idea that we know more now that we don't need to trust in this God or believe in this God thing anymore. We've outgrown him as a human species. And so I've got, I've got both on my table and I read both and I reflect on both because I want objective truth. When I judge this video of Penn, it seems like Penn decided what he believed before he went to the Bible and that he chose to listen to people whom he knew agreed with him and supported his belief system that he had already determined. And so we need, always need to make sure that we listen to the other side as well. Penn said, the simple sentence, there is no God, gave me joy and love and confidence. Why? Because he felt like a minority believing in God. He didn't want to believe in God. He says now he's on the side that is winning. Oh yes, absolutely. 
And the same Bible we're speaking about predicted it. Of course, it's the fastest growing religion, if you want to call it a religion. Yes, sure. He talks about gay rights. That is a political issue. And sure, everyone can choose how they live. Um, we need to distinguish between not liking what God does and God not existing. And many people do this. They see something that God says or does or approves of and then decide it doesn't fit into my framework. Therefore, God doesn't exist. No, God still exists. You just don't like what he says. Okay, and so you reject God because you choose your own truth over that of what God says is truth. Um, and so you see actually that most of these guys, they, they don't like the fact that God has a problem with sin. And so the person chooses to distance himself from the faith. In a nutshell, here is just evidence once again. Most people don't believe in God because they don't want to believe in him. That's why. They don't like his principles or ways since it contradicts their own. I've read this to you before. I'm going to read it to you again in conclusion because once again it's just true again. Thomas Nagel, atheist, he wrote this um, at Oxford in Oxford University Press 1997 called The Last Word. Listen to what he says and he speaks so true to what most atheists don't want to admit. Here it is. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I leave those thoughts with you. Have a fantastic week. We talk again next week. Love you all. Bye-bye.